Chapter Eighteen of the Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Eighteen. Strangers with whom Piers Otway had business at this time saw in him a young man of considerable energy, though rather nervous and impulsive, capable in all that concerned his special interest not over-sanguine, inclined to brevity of speech, and scrupulously courteous in a cold way. He seldom smiled. His clean-cut, intelligent features expressed tension of the whole man, ceaseless strain and effort, without that joy of combat which compensates physical expenditure. He looked in fair, not robust health. A shadowed pallor of complexion was natural to him, and made noticeable the very fine texture of his skin, which quickly betrayed in delicate flushes any strong feeling. He shook hands with a short, firm grip, which argued more muscle than one might have supposed in him. His walk was rapid, his bearing upright, his glance direct with something of apprehensive pride. The observant surmised a force more or less at odds with the facts of life. Shrewd men of commerce at once perceived his qualities, but reserved their judgment as to his chances. He was not in any case altogether of their world, however well he might have studied its principles and inured himself to its practice. He took rooms in Guildford Street. Indifferent to locality, asking nothing more than decency in his immediate surroundings, he fell by accident on the better kind of lodging-house, and was at once what is called comfortable. His landlady behaved to him with a peculiar respectfulness, often noticeable in the uneducated who had relations with Otway, and explained perhaps by his quiet air of authority. To those who served him no man was more considerate, but he never became familiar with them. Without a trace of pretentiousness in his demeanour, he was viewed by such persons as one sensibly above them, with some solid right to rule. In the selection of his place of business, he, of course, exercised more care, but here, too, luck favoured him. A Russian merchant, moving into more spacious quarters, ceded to him a small office in Fenchurch Street, with furniture which he purchased at a very reasonable price. To begin with, he hired only a lad. It would be seen in a month or so whether he had need of more assistance. If business grew, he was ready to take upon himself a double share, for the greater his occupation, the less his time for brooding. Labour was what he asked, steady, dogged toil, and his only regret was that he could not work with his hands in the open air at some day-long employment followed by hunger and weariness and dreamless sleep. The partner whose name he did not wish to mention was John Jacks. Very soon after learning the result to the young man of Jerome Otway's death, the knowledge came in an indirect way half a year later, Mr. Jacks wrote to Piers a letter implying what he knew, and made offer of a certain capital toward the proposed business. Piers did not at once accept the offer, for difficulties had arisen on the side of his friend Montchamont, who, on Otway's announcement of inability to carry out the scheme they had formed together, turned in another direction. A year passed, John Jacks wrote again, 
and Moncharmont's other projects having come to nothing, the friends decided at length to revert to their original plan, with the difference that a third partner supplied capital equal to that which Moncharmont himself put into the venture. The arrangement was strictly businesslike. John Jacks, for all his kindliness, had no belief in anything else where money was concerned, and Piers Otway would not have listened to any other sort of suggestion. Piers put into the affair only his brains, his vigour and his experience. He was to reap no reward but that fairly resulting from the exercise of these qualities. Only a day or two before leaving Odessa, he received a letter from Mrs. Hannaford, in which she hinted that Irene Derwent was likely to marry. On reaching London, he found at the hotel her answer to his reply. She now named Miss Derwent's wooer, and spoke as if the marriage were practically a settled thing. This turned to an ordeal for Piers what otherwise would have been a pleasure, his call upon John Jacks. He had to dine at Queen's Gate, he had to converse with Arnold Jacks, and for the first time in his life he knew the meaning of personal jealousy. The sight of Irene's successful lover made active in him what had for years been only a latent passion. All at once it seemed impossible that he should have lost what hitherto he had scarcely ever felt it possible to win. An unconsciously reared edifice of hope collapsed about him, laid waste his life, left him standing in desolate revolt against fate. Arnold Jacks was the embodiment of a cruel destiny. Piers regarded him not so much with hate as with a certain bitter indignation. He had no desire to disparage the man, to caricature his assailable points. Rather, in undiminished worship of Irene, he exaggerated the qualities which had won her, the power to which her gallant pride had yielded. These qualities, that power, were so unlike anything in himself that they gave boundless scope to a jealous imagination. He knew so little of the man, of his pursuits, his society, his prospects or ambitions, but he could not imagine that Irene's love would be given to any man of ordinary type. There must be a nobility in John Jack's son, and indeed, knowing the father, one could readily believe it. Piers suffered a cruel sense of weakness, of littleness by comparison. And Arnold behaved so well to him, with such frank, graceful courtesy, to withhold the becoming return was to feel oneself a shrinking creature, basely envious. It was at Mrs. Hannaford's suggestion that he asked to be allowed to call on Olga. A few days later, having again exchanged letters with Irene's aunt, he sat writing in the office after business hours, his door and that of the anteroom both open. Footsteps on the staircase had become infrequent since the main exodus of Clark's. He listened whenever there was a sound, and looked towards the entrance. There at length appeared a lady, Mrs. Hannaford herself. Piers went forward and greeted her without words, motioning her with his hand into the inner office, the outer door he latched. "'So I have tracked you to your lair!' exclaimed the visitor with a nervous laugh, as she sank in fatigue upon the chair he placed for her. "'I looked for your name on the wall downstairs, forgetting that you are Mont Charmont and Co. 
"'It is very, very kind of you to have taken all this trouble.' He saw in her face the signs of ill-health for which he was prepared, and noticed with pain her tremulousness and shortness of breath after the stair-climbing. The friendship which had existed between them since his boyhood was true and deep as ever. Piers Otway could, as few men can, be the loyal friend of a woman. A reverent tenderness coloured his feeling towards Mrs. Hannaford. It was something like what he would have felt for his mother had she now been living. He did not give much thought to her character or circumstances. She had always been kind to him, and he in turn had always liked her. That was enough. Anything in her service that might fall within his power to do, he would do right gladly. So you saw poor Olga? Oh, yes, and the friend she lives with, and Mr. Kite. Ah, oh, Mr. Kite, the speaker's face brightened. I have some news about him. It came this morning. He has gone to Paris and means to stay there. Oh, indeed, I heard no syllable of that the other day. Oh, but it is true, and Olga's letter to me, in which she mentions it, gives hope that it is the end of their engagement. Naturally, the poor child won't say it in so many words, but it is to be read between the lines. What's more, she is willing to come for her holiday with me. It has made me very happy. I told you I was going to Malvern. My brother thinks that is the most likely to do me good. Irene will go down with me and stay a day or two, and then I hope to have Olga. It is delightful. I hadn't dared to hope. Perhaps we shall really come together again after this dreary time. Piers was listening, but with a look which had become uneasily preoccupied. I am as glad, almost, as you can be, he said. Malvern, I was never there. Oh, so healthy, my brother says. And Shakespeare's country, you know. We shall go to Stratford, which I have never seen. I have a feeling that I really shall get better. Everything is more hopeful. Piers recalled Olga's mysterious hints about her mother. Glancing at the worn face with its vivid eyes, he could easily conceive that this ill health had its cause in some grave mental trouble. "'Have you met your brother?' she asked. "'My brother? Oh, no,' was the careless reply. And then, on a sudden thought, Piers added, "'You don't keep up your acquaintance with him, do you?' "'Oh, I have seen him now and then.' There was a singular hesitancy in her answer to the abrupt question. Piers, preoccupied as he was, could not but remark Mrs. Hannaford's constraint, almost confusion. At once it struck him that Daniel had been borrowing money of her, and the thought aroused strong indignation. His own hundred and fifty pounds he had never recovered for all Daniel's fine speeches, and notwithstanding the fact that he had taken suggestive care to let the borrower know his address in Russia. Rapidly he turned in his mind the question whether he ought not to let Mrs. Hannaford know of Daniel's untrustworthiness. But before he could decide, she launched into another subject. "'So this is to be your place of business. Here you will sit day after day. 
if good wishes could help how you would flourish is it orthodox to pray for a friend's success in business why not provided you add so long as he is guilty of no rascality oh that you will never be why to tell you the truth i shouldn't know how to go about it not every one who wishes becomes a rascal in business it's difficult enough for me to pursue commerce on the plain honest track knavery demands an expertness altogether beyond me wherefore let us give thanks for my honest stupidity they chatted a while of these things and then piers grasping his courage uttered what was burning within him when is miss derwent to be married mrs hannaford's eyes escaped his hard look she murmured that no date had yet been settled tell me i beg you will tell me is her engagement absolutely certain i feel sure it is no i want more than that do you know that it is i can only say that her father believes it to be a certain thing no announcement has yet been made mm. then it isn't settled at all piers sat stiffly upon his chair he held an ivory paper-knife which he kept bending across his knee and of a sudden the thing snapped in two but he paid no attention merely flinging the handle away mrs hannaford looked him in the face he was deeply flushed his lips and throat trembled like those of a child on the point of tears oh don't oh don't take it so to heart it seems impossible after all this time impossible or not it is he replied impetuously mrs hannaford you will do something for me you will let me come down to malvern while she is with you and see her speak with her alone she drew back astonished oh how can you think of it mr otway why should i not he spoke in a low and soft voice but with vehemence does she know all about me everything it was not i who told her there has been talk <laughs> of course there has he smiled and i am glad of it i wished her to know otherwise i should have told her oh yes i should have told her it shocks you mrs hannaford but try to understand what this means to me it is the one thing i greatly desire in all the world should i be hindered by a petty consideration of etiquette a wild desire you think <laughs> well the man sentenced to execution clings to life clings to it with a terrible fierce desire is it less real because utterly hopeless perhaps i am behaving frantically i can't help myself as that engagement is still doubtful you admit it to be doubtful i shall speak before it's too late why not have done so before simply i hadn't the courage i suppose i was too young it didn't mean so much to me as it does now something tells me to act like a man before it's too late i feel i can do it i never could have till now oh but listen to me oh do listen oh think how extraordinary it will seem to her she has no suspicion of 
but she has she knows i sent her a year ago a poem some verses of my writing which told her mrs hannaford kept silence with a face of distress is there any harm he pursued in asking you whether she has ever spoken of me lately of since that time she has admitted the other reluctantly but not in a way to make one think no no i expected nothing of the kind she has mentioned me that is enough i am not utterly expelled from her thoughts as a creature outlawed by all decent people oh, of course not she's too reasonable and kind that she is exclaimed piers with a passionate delight on his visage and in his voice and she would rather i spoke to her i feel she would she with her fine intelligence and noble heart she would think it dreadful that a man did not dare to approach her just because of something not his fault something that made him no bit less the man and capable of honour i know that thought would shake her with pity and indignation so far i can read in her what you think i know her too little and the thought of her never out of my mind for these five years i have got to know her better and better as time went on every word she spoke at ewell stayed in my memory and by perpetual repetition has grown into my life every sentence has given me its full meaning i didn't need to be near her to study her she was in my mind i heard her and saw her whenever i wished as i have grown older and more experienced in life i have been better able to understand her i used to think this was enough i had you know that exalted sort of mood dante's beatrice and all that it was enough for the time seeing that i lived with it and through it but now no <laughs> and there is no single reason why i should be ashamed to stand before her and tell her that what i feel he checked himself and gloomed for an instant and then continued in another tone yet that isn't true there are reasons i believe no man living could say that when speaking of such a woman as irene derwent i cannot face her without shame the shame of every man who stands before a pure-hearted girl we have to bear that and to hide it as best we can the listener bent upon him a wondering gaze and seemed unable to avert it till his look answered her you will give me this opportunity mrs hannaford he added pleadingly i have no right whatever to refuse it besides how could i if i wished when shall i come i must remember that i am not free to wander about if it could be a sunday oh i've forgotten something i ought to have told you already said mrs hannaford while she was on her travels irene had an offer from someone else piers laughed can that surprise one should i wonder if i were told she had fifty oh, yes but this was not of the ordinary kind you know that mr jacks is well acquainted with trafford romaine 
and it was trafford romaine himself the news did not fail of its impression piers smiled vaguely and on the smile came a look of troubled pride well it is not astonishing but it gives me a better opinion of the man i shall always feel a sort of sympathy when i come across his name why did you think i ought to know for a reason i feel to be rather foolish now i come to speak of it replied mrs hannaford but i had a feeling that irene is by nature rather ambitious and if after such an experience as that she so soon accepts a man who has done nothing particular whose position is not brilliant i understand she must you mean be very strongly drawn to him but then i needed no such proof of her feeling if it is certain that she is going to marry him could i imagine her marrying a man for any reason but one surely you could not oh no no the denial had a certain lack of emphasis otway's eyes flashed you doubt you speak in that way of irene derwent gazing into mrs hannaford's face he saw rising tears she gave a little laugh which did not disguise her emotion as she answered him oh what an idealist it makes a man oh, don't talk of your unworthiness if some women are good it's because they try hard to be what the best men think them no no i have no doubts of irene and that is why it really grieves me to see you still hoping she would never have gone so far oh, but there's a very question cried piers excitedly who knows how far she has gone it may be the merest conjecture on your part and her father's people are so ready to misunderstand a girl who respects herself enough to be free and frank in her association with men let me shame myself by making a confession five years ago when i all but went mad about her i was contemptible enough to think she had treated me cruelly he gave a scornful laugh <laughs> you know what i mean at ewell when i lived only for my books and she drew me away from them conceited idiot and she so bravely honest so simple and direct so human was it her fault if i lost my head she certainly changed the whole course of your life said mrs hannaford thoughtfully true she did and to my vast advantage what should i have become a clerkship at whitehall heaven defend us at best a learned pedant in my case she sent me out into the world where there's always hope she gave me health and sanity above all she set before me an ideal which has never allowed me to fall hopelessly never will let me become a contented brute if she never addresses another word to me i shall owe her an infinite debt as long as i live and i want her to hear that from my own lips if only once mrs hannaford held out her hand impulsively do what you feel you must you make me feel very strangely i never knew what her voice faltered and she rose when she had left him 
Piers sat for some time communing with his thoughts. Then he went home to the simple meal he called dinner, and afterwards, as the evening was clear, walked for a couple of hours away from the louder streets. His resolve gave him a night of quiet rest. End of chapter 18